Tamasato ma sadgamaya, Tamaso ma jyotir gamaya, Mrityur amritam gamaya, Om Shanti 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 Om, lead us from the unreal to the real, lead us from darkness unto light, lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Well, thank you everyone, especially Mataji and her team for having me here, organizing this beautiful retreat in this beautiful place. It's really, this place has spirit. And thank you all for joining. The text that we have selected, you have uh, the book with you, Manisha Panchakam. So it's a text of Vedanta, of Advaita Vedanta. And most of us here, by the way, I was just telling, um, speaking with Mangeshji, and I said, you don't get new people. It, it's all people I know. <laughs> there are people from different Vedanta societies across the country here. Um, so most of us here are veteran Vedantins, so we do know what Vedanta is about. But still, once in a while, it ta it's good to uh, take a look, a retrospective look at what exactly is Vedanta. Recently I was in St. Louis and revered Swami Chaitanandaji, uh, he gave me this subject. He says once in a while he gives this subject to visiting Swamis, what is Vedanta? You <laughs> And he says it's been wonderful for the, from 1971 onwards when he has been, uh, he's been in this country. He has heard the same subject again and again from different teachers and uh, new insights, new perspectives. So I thought, what, what am I going to say to a group of experienced Vedantins when you ask what is Vedanta? And what I did was I asked myself this question seven times. I later counted, ask, what is Vedanta? Give, give, give an answer. Ask yourself again, what is Vedanta? Give a different answer. And again, a different answer. I'm not going to go through that, but do look it up. Uh, do look up that particular talk. It's on the um, Vedanta Society of St. Louis uh, website, YouTube channel. Also on our Vedanta Society of New York YouTube channel. What is Vedanta? One way of understanding Vedanta is to understand what it is not. Now, and there's a very comprehensive way of looking at Vedanta, and we'll speak about that later. But often it's useful to drill down to the core of Advaita Vedanta. And to drill down to the core of Advaita Vedanta, you can ask, what is it not? You see, spiritual life, it depends on how you set up the question. The answer that you'll get, it depends on how you set up the question. One way of looking at the problem of spiritual life is um, the way we are used to it, the different religions of the world, in the th especially the theistic religions of the world. God exists. We do not have faith in God, do not love uh, God, do not worship God, do, uh, do not surrender to God. That is the problem. And the solution would be to have faith, to have devotion and love and surrender. So this, this structure, this is easily recognizable as the bhakti approach, the devotional approach, the faith-based approach. Um, it starts with faith. You cannot enter a devotional uh, approach to religion with questions and skepticism. You must enter it with, with some degree of faith. That's one way of looking at it. But when you come to, say, another approach, see, that, that is such a predominant approach, the approach of faith, that in most religions across the world, that is taken to be religion. In fact, in the United States, here, in the Western world, the word for religion is what? Faith. 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 And yet it's not an appropriate word. If you come to something like Advaita Vedanta, come to something like yoga, for example, it's not quite faith. Uh, so. There are other paradigms of religion. There are other ways, entirely different ways of looking at spirituality. Another way is, no, not faith, but experience. Swami Vivekananda, when he came here, one reason why his message was so powerful, he said to a world, to the Western world, which was used to thinking of religion as faith, as believing in something, he said, 
It is not believing in something. Religion is not believing. It, it's, it's realization. Religion is realization. Religion is experience. If there is a God, I must see God. If I have an immortal soul, I must feel it. So he is speaking of the language of experience. What kind of experience? The yogi tells you, the Patanjali yogi, the yogi tells you that not faith, but here are a certain set of psychophysical exercises, which if you go through, if you pursue it, you will actually experience for yourself the truth of these claims. So you will actually see, uh, within quotes, that there, that there is some truth to the to the claim about God or an immortal soul, that we are not the body and mind, this will be revealed to you in experience. So that's the language of experience. And that sort of became a paradigm for the New Age movement. In fact, for the, the New Thought and the New Age movement actually experiencing it in life, not something just to believe in something, not just to assent to something. That's the language of experience. But even that is not Advaita Vedanta. Many people do not distinguish between the yogic approach, the experience approach, and Advaita Vedanta. Advaita Vedanta is something different. There is a third approach, and it's so subtle that people often do not distinguish between the yogic approach and the, uh, the jnana approach or the Advaita approach. Jnana approach means the approach of knowledge, of, of insight. You see, what is the problem with the um, devotional approach, if you will, if you're going to find fault, if you're going to find problems, the problem will be it's difficult in this age of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and, uh, and Daniel Dennett uh, and, and the militant atheists um, to have unshaken faith just like that. Some people are blessed with it, but often if it is attacked, the house of faith of, um, proves to be shaky. Um, under the hammer blows of uh, modern criticism, of scientific criticism, uh, of materialist reductionism, the whole apparatus, the, the structure of faith seems to be shaky and difficult to defend. Against that you can say, what about the yogic approach? You can actually experience these things. But there also you can attack it. Oh, you are having this, what is this experience you're speaking about in yoga? Uh, it is uh, extraordinary experience, not this ordinary experience which we are having. It is mystical experience. You know, you have visions, the mystics of religions all of the world, they have had this experience. But the problem with that, if you're going to find fault, the problem with that is, um, today a neuroscientist might say, that, oh no, no, you're not seeing God, or you're not experiencing universal oneness. It's just a, a mild stroke on the left hemisphere of your brain or something, and that's why uh, you are having these experiences, but it, it does not prove anything at all. You just feel like that, or you feel one with the universe, or you are having a vision of God or angels or light. Uh, we can have the same thing if you take a particular drug, you can have the same experience. If um, you have a little uh, blood clot in your brain, you can maybe have the same experience. So does it really prove you are one with the universe? Does it really prove that um, there is uh, a, a universal spirit? No, it may not be so. So, how do you answer that? There is this third approach, and now we are coming to what we are going to study, what we are going to investigate. This approach is experience, but it's a knowledge-based approach, not extraordinary experience, not faith. You are not asked to believe in anything in Advaita Vedanta. In fact, you must not. You must um, question and try to understand. It's, I often give the example of signing up for a course maybe in the University of Arizona and you go to, go to a physics class or a math class and if the professor says, did you get it? And you say, sir, you are great, I believe you. The professor will tear his or her hair and you don't have to believe me, you have to get it, I want you to understand. Uh -huh. So it's not a question of believing something. It's not also a question of extraordinary experience. This is something to be understood. When we will see this text or any Advaitic text, the experience that Advaita uses, that Jnana uses, the path, this path we are going to talk about, is commonplace experience, which everybody has. What is the experience they will use? You will see. The experience of being awake, which most of us, presumably, you are. And before you, 
before you transition to other rarefied states of experience, I will bring it to your close, don't worry. Um, experience of being awake, experience of indeed, yes, even falling asleep, the experience of dreaming. Advaita does not ask us to go into those states. You must not fall asleep and start dreaming or um, sound sleep, you know. You can sleep, but don't make the sound. <laughs> so, common experience, the experience of being, of a see, you're seeing, and there are things which you see. You're hearing right now, and you're hearing what I'm speaking. This common experience of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching, of thinking, and this experience of <clears throat> waking, dreaming, deep sleep, this experience of being embodied. So common experiences which all of us have, just the experience of being a sentient, aware being, just that experience, the, the most common experience everybody has, all of us share it. Then what does Advaita do? It takes that experience and then draws our attention to something which we did not see earlier. Sri Ramakrishna told this wonderful story. It will be good to keep in mind. It's really applicable to our situation. He said that this washerman, and that takes some explanation. In India, those who are, those who are from India, you know. But, uh, but those of us who are not from India, you will not know. Um, there are still, a clothes washer is not a machine. It's a man, typically, <laughs> who will come to your house and pick up your laundry and take it. Um, usually, the person will take it to, the, uh, to a river bed, to the, the bank of a river, and then you, you don't want to see what he does to your <laughs> expensive clothes. He's, uh, he washes them very, very thoroughly. But he, get, he gets it very clean. Now this washerman, one of our swamis, he was in the 1980s, 70s, 80s, he was saying, he, he was alarmed, he, he went to India to our monastery and he asked for a nail cutter. And he, he was telling us, the next day I got the nail cutter. What is the nail cutter? This rather fierce looking character with a knife. <laughs> he asked, oh, what do you want? He's banging on my door early in the morning. You asked for me. No, I didn't. I am the nail cutter. <laughs> <coughs> so just like that, the washerman, he takes your clothes and he washes them there. This washerman, he found a diamond, but he didn't know what, a di what it was. He, he thought it was just a peculiar rock and he used to scrub the clothes with it. He didn't know what, how valuable it was. But one day, he thought, it's not like other rocks. Let me ask my friend, the vegetable seller who might know, who is wiser than me more. And so he goes to the vegetable seller, and the vegetable seller says, hmm, this seems valuable. Um, I can give you a bag of um, brinjals for it, or uh, uh, some vegetables for it, I can trade you. Luckily, that washerman did not agree to that trade. He went higher up the food chain. And finally, he comes to this uh, diamond merchant who recognizes the rock for what it is, the biggest diamond he has ever seen. And he says, this is a magnificent stone, it's a magnificent diamond. I will give you 10 lakh rupees for it, uh, 10 million rupees for it. That was, was more money than the, the poor washman could have ever imagined in his life. And so all his wants were removed, and now he becomes this very rich person. So he, whatever poverty he had is, is removed. Now that's, that's a story about spiritual life. See, he had the diamond all through, but he didn't know what he had. We have the diamond, which can remove all our wants. We have it right now. And we are, we are aware of it. We are using it. But we do not know how valuable it is. We do not know its true depth. We will see, we will, like that washerman, now, when we come to Shankaracharya, who's like the diamond merchant, he will show us the diamond that we have in our possession. Over the next two days, we will see. So, we are using this diamond, which we have. What is this diamond? We are using, how are we using it? Right now, we are using it to see me. We are using it to think and to talk and to be curious. What is he talking about? We are using that. Shankaracharya will point it out to us. So we already have it, 
it, it needs to be pointed out to us. So that pointing out, that insight into what already exists, that is Advaita Vedanta. I, I would like to put it this way, if you ask what is Advaita Vedanta, the spiritual journey, in any path, it's a spiritual journey. The very fact that we use, say, a path, it means it's a spiritual journey. But what kind of a journey is it? It's not a journey in space. Many of us, we have come from different parts of this vast and beautiful land. Some have come from Canada. We journeyed in space. Advaita Vedanta is not a journey in space. It's not a journey to the holy city of Banaras or Mecca or Jerusalem. It's not a journey from here to heaven, to Vaikuntha, the, the abode of Vishnu, or to the pure land of the Buddha. It's not a journey from one place to another. Sometimes you see when you're coming across uh, it's a big board, you know, uh, heaven is a place. Okay, which means this is not heaven. That is heaven. It's not a journey like that, not from one place to another. What Advaita Vedanta is going to talk about, what they're going to point out, is present right here. It's everywhere, it's right here. It's not a journey in time. Sometimes spiritual journey is put forward as a journey in time. Not now, but after the coming of the prophet or the messiah or the avatar, after the coming of the next um, uh, Kalki avatar in Hinduism, we have this avatar in Christianity, the coming of, the, um, uh, of, of Jesus again, the second coming. Wait in time or wait um, after death. Look at the words after. After means time. It's a time word. Advaita Vedanta is not a journey in time. That after something, after samadhi, this is Swami, at least enlightenment, after enlightenment, oh no, no. Advaita Vedanta doesn't say it will happen to us after enlightenment. Enlightenment is only enlightenment. It reveals what already exists. We just see, oh it was here all along and I didn't see it. So it's not a journey in time, it's not a journey in space. It's not even a journey from yourself to something else. There is God and I will realize God, find God, see God. Not even that. It is you yourself, it is I myself, our own inner reality. Not from one place to another, not from one time to another time, not even from one object to, not even from yourself to something else. It's right here, right now, and it is ourselves. <laughs> then what is the path? What is the journey in Advaita Vedanta? It is a journey from ignorance to knowledge. Ajnana in Sanskrit means ignorance. Jnana means knowledge. From not knowing, not realizing, not seeing, to knowing, realizing, seeing. Now some of you are looking puzzled. Remember, what I'm, do what I'm doing here is drilling down to the essential core of Advaita Vedanta. I'm not knocking or criticizing, um, what's the word used here? Dissing. <laughs> <laughs> Devotion or meditation, uh, I'm not, or traditional religion, not at all. Not at all. All of them have their place and we'll see what role they play. But we are taking a particular paradigm here. Let's just remember, for the next two and a half days, we're trying to take the paradigm of Advaita Vedanta. There are advantages to this paradigm. If I want to adver advertise this, the advant advantages, one would be, it's, it's very direct. It points to something here and now and all the time. It is also, don't mistake me at all, but I must say it, it's also effortless. <laughs> and now, now there's a lot of smiles around. <laughs> but don't misunderstand me. There can be a lot of effort involved. There, there's a lot of effort at other things which are peripheral, which, are, which surround this spiritual quest. But the enlightenment which they speak about is effortless. As effortless as you yourself are effortless. What, do, what work do you have to put to be yourself? You are yourself, whatever you do. So this is the core idea of Advaita Vedanta. What is the point of all of this? Advaita Vedanta in common with all other spiritual paths, at least the Indian paradigm of spirituality, is to overcome suffering. Dukkha Nivritti overcome suffering. The Buddha's quest, when he started off in, in his quest is, there is suffering, 
Is there a solution to suffering? Is there an escape from suffering? One of the ancient texts, Sarva Darshana Sangraha, 600 years ago in India, which is, a, which is a collection of different Indian spiritual paths. It says that these spiritual seekers, teachers, they are like doctors. Chikitsakaiva. There are many doctors here. What do they do? They identify the symptoms and the disease. Then they look for a cause of the disease and they see whether the cause can be removed or not. Is it curable or incurable? And they find it's removable, removable. there's a cure to it. And there is a treatment, a process of treatment. So like the Buddha, the disease is suffering. First noble truth, all is suffering. And the disease has a cause. He says, second noble truth, desire is the cause. And the disease has a cure, there's an escape from suffering. Nirvana is possible. Heinrich Zimmer, a famous Indologist and philosopher, he said, contrary to appearances, the philosophies of India are positive. They are optimistic, they are not pessimistic. What is pessimistic? When you say all is suffering and that's it. <laughs> it, is, it is positive because all of these philosophies of India, except the materialist, the Charvaka, all the other teachings, whether Hindu or Buddhist or Jain or whatever, all of them say a solution to suffering is possible. There is an escape from suffering, there is a transcendence of limitation and suffering and misery. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is fulfillment. Uh, ananda prapti. Our very nature is bliss. And how do I realize that and benefit from that? How do I get the full benefit of the diamond? That's the whole purpose. So having said that, let me quickly come to... Um, give me a 10-minute warning and a 5-minute warning. Right? When we, um, though we are in quest of the timeless, we are still have to operate within the <laughs> bounds of... <laughs> of the temporal, time and space. <laughs> yeah. So, Advaita Vedanta, we know, if you ask the question, what is Advaita Vedanta? Textually, the fundamentals of Advaita Vedanta are in the Upanishads, the texts called the Upanishads. In fact, the definition of Vedanta is Vedanta Nama Upanishad Pramanam. Vedanta is the source of spiritual knowledge called the Upanishads. So these are texts found in the, in the Vedas, the, the holy books of the, of the Hindus. Now, based on these Upanishads, Sri Krishna taught Arjuna, the famous text Bhagavad Gita. In fact, one text if you want to take from the Vedanta tradition or the Hindu tradition, if you ask for one book, it is the Bhagavad Gita. But the, many people do not know, Sri Krishna was liberally borrowing from the Upanishads. Um, sometimes the exact verses are there, the mantras in the Bhagavad Gita. So the second uh, pillar of uh, Advaita Vedanta is the Bhagavad Gita. And there's one more called the Brahma Sutras, which is a philosophical investigation into the teachings, a systematization, if you will, of the Upanishads. So this tripod, this is called in Sanskrit Prasthanatrai, the triple foundation or the triple canon of Vedanta. But there are many, many other texts Shankaracharya who wrote commentaries on these major texts, but he also wrote a number of independent works, Prakaranas. Prakaranas are introductory works, smaller works, which sum up the essence of Vedanta. One of them is the book which you have, the Manisha Panchakam. Very quickly, the background story, and then I will be done. Um, the story goes like this. Adi Shankaracharya, about 1400 years ago, the great... Uh, teacher of, I'm not saying founder, because he's not the founder of Advaita Vedanta. He is what is called Bhashyakara, the great commentator on the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the Brahma Sutras. He with, his, with a group of his disciples was in the holy city of, of Banaras, Kashi. And after a, um, a holy dip in the holy river Ganga, he is walking down the narrow, and believe you me, they are narrow, narrow lanes of Banaras, when the road is blocked on the other side by a Chandala, a member of one of the lowest castes. It was a very rigid caste system in, in India in those days. And so the, this person comes of fearsome aspect. He's tall and powerfully built with matted hair, grimy looking. Now there are different versions of the story. In one, he, is, he has got a group of dogs, which are again considered unclean by uh, upper caste um, Brahmins. 
Uh, or in another version of the story, he's carrying a load of meat, which would be repulsive to the uh, purely vegetarian Shankara, who, who, is a high, who was before becoming a monk, a high caste Brahmin from, from Kerala. Whatever it is, Shankara reacts like one would expect from somebody of his class in India in those days. He says, move out, get thee away from me. So move out, gacha in Sanskrit, gacha, gacha, away from me. And this Chandala, this fearsome person blocking the road, he, in most eloquent Sanskrit, he bursts out with a challenge to Shankara. So there are two verses which are not part of the Manisha Panchakam, but they are introductions to the Manisha, Manisha Panchakam. So I just read out these two verses quickly. What does the Chandala say? He says, Tannamaya dannamayam athava chaitanyam eva chaitanya dvijavara duri kattum vanchasi kimbruhi gacha gacheti O most noble of Brahmins, though it's not quite appropriate to call Shankara that because after becoming a monk you don't remain a Brahmin or a, a member of any other caste. But anyway, he does come from a Brahmin and he is being very casteist by telling the Chandala to move away. So then in that sense it's appropriate to be challenged. He says, Dvijavara, Dvija, the word uh, Dvija means twice born. Born again. <laughs> uh, I saw this cartoon, born again Christian. So born again Christian confronts a Hindu and says, I'm a born again Christian. And Hindu looks puzzled and he says, yes, but I'm a born again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> Not quite in, in that sense born again. But the sense in which a Christian might say born again Christian, that's actually a sense in which Dvija is twice born. For the first birth is a physical birth. But the second birth is a cultural, educational, spiritual birth. The second birth is when the um, sacred threat is given and the child is ready for uh, Vedic studies. So second birth, Upanayana, the, the sacred threat ceremony is performed. Dvija. And when the, the child studies the Vedas and becomes a master of this sacred lore, this person is called Vipra. Same, the word Dvija, Vipra and Brahmana, Brahmin, they all mean the same thing, but there are shades of difference. Dvija, the Sanskrit word mean, literally means twice born. Vipra means wise. Vipra, if you write in English, V-I-P-R-A. You know, ekam sat vipra bahudavadanti, we find it in many Vedanta societies. The truth is one and the wise speak of it differently. The wise means here, the same Brahmin is, is a person who has not only got the sacred thread, but also studied the Vedas. Now has mastered the sacred lore, the teachings. And the same Brahmin, when the person gets enlightenment, realizes one's nature as Brahman. So the real meaning the essential meaning, the highest meaning of Brahmin is a person who has got Brahma Jnana, has become enlightened. Normally we say Brahmin is a Brahmin by birth, uh, by caste, but the real meaning is Brahma the knower of Brahman. And that's how it's used in many of the Upanishads and in the Gita. So Brahmin, so three meanings, the same, same thing. Uh, Brahmin, when uh, they, they get the um, sacred thread, Dvija, twice born. You're born into spiritual life or, or religious life. Reading, finish your course of studies, Vipra, the wise. And finally, enlightened one, Brahmin, a true Brahmin. Anyway, so this uh, Chandala uh, challenges him. O most noble among the twice born, what do you want to, to what are you saying, get away, get, get, what should get away from what? This body from that body, because both bodies are bodies. They're made of flesh and blood and bones and, and all sorts of unmentionable gooey stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Just because it's a nice packaging, a cover, a skin, the, the truth is that it, it's, it's uh, pretty nasty. Your body and my body too. So you're saying this body should move away from the body. The word he uses is annamaya. Annamaya means a modification of food. What we eat and drink, it becomes this. Or, here he displays a knowledge of Shankara's philosophy. 
Are you saying consciousness should move away from consciousness? How is that possible? In your philosophy, O Shankara, isn't it one consciousness? You, you speak about one non-indivisible spiritual consciousness, one, one existence, consciousness, bliss, sat, chit, ananda. How can that be divided? I remember long ago, in one of our ashrams in India, the Swami had, I was a junior monk, now it had many little branches. One of the branches is uh, where little children study, you know, the children from poor families, uh, they get a, like a Sunday school and many things are there, they, they learn sports and um, so that runs on, all of these run on donations. So a rich person came and he wanted to donate a certain amount of money and he wanted a plaque to be put up uh, in the name of his father and mother, which said, he gave the, he gave what is to be said there. He said, in the glory of Sri Ramakrishna, who is, who has come as a part of that indivisible existence consciousness place. Now look at the contradiction, part of indivisible. Uh, in Bengali, akhando shachidanandir khando sharupai. Now the Swami, he flew into, into a rage. He said, no, I will not allow the indivisible to be divided. And how we knew, he started calling uh, the young swamis. I don't know, <laughs> he was slightly, he was doing it in fun or whatever, but he seemed pretty serious. What is your opinion? He asked me and he asked some others. Now the swami who was in charge of that little, little center where the kids were being taught, who would have received the donation for that center, he was standing outside with a worried look. You know, <laughs> he was saying, I'm not really worried about the indivisible spirit, Brahman, but I don't want the donation to be divided. <laughs> How can consciousness move away from consciousness? How are we doing for time? We've got time. And then he goes on. So, so what are you saying? King Bruhi Gatcha Gatchaiti. What are you saying that move away, move away? And then you can imagine Shankara and his disciples, they stand stunned to be confronted with this philosophical challenge from the most unexpected source. And then the Chandala, he, ex he expounds further. The next verse is pretty deep. But this is not part of the Manisha Panchakam itself, but this is uh, introduction. Kim Gangambuni Bimbite Ambaramano Chandalavati Paya Purevantaramasti Kanchanaghati Mutkumbhayorvambare Pratyagvastuni Nistaranga Sahajananda Vabodham Budhau Viproyam Swapachoyam Ityapi Mahan Koyam Vibheda Brahmaha. Very technical, very deep. In fact, all of Advaita Vedanta has poured into it and showing Shankara that he knows Shankara's philosophy backwards and forwards. And he says that infinite ocean, limitless ocean, ocean of what? Not of water. Ananda avabodha. Avabodha means consciousness. Literally it means understanding, but consciousness, awareness. And ananda, blissful awareness. Bliss and awareness and limitless. And nistaranga, without waves. Ocean has waves. This is no waves. It's an unchanging, limitless expanse of, uh, of, of uh, consciousness and bliss. Oh really? How nice. Where is that? Pratyagvastu, it's inside you. It is you, the inner self. The one which we experience as I, this one inside. Pratyagvastu. In that inner existence, in inner being, our inner being, which is like an infinite expanse of a waveless, waveless ocean of consciousness and bliss. Um, what difference is there between a noble Brahmin like you and a chandala like me. The literal word here is swapacha, dog eater. So that person would be looked down in India and America also because <laughs> nobody loves uh, the dogs more than, especially in Manhattan, I see everybody. <laughs> so, but like a uh, chandala like me and a high uh, class Brahmin like you, what difference is there from that perspective? 
Koyam Viveda Brahma. Not only is the difference is there, where is this delusion of difference coming in, in, in you? Then he gives two examples. The sun, here standing for that infinite expanse of consciousness and bliss. The sun, the example. The sun in the sky, when it is reflected in the holy waters of the Ganga, the Ganga water flowing in, in Banaras, or the same sun reflected in, a, in the ditch water in the slum where I live. He lives in a slum. What difference does it make to the sun itself? So what is the water of the Ganga? It's the body and the mind. You may think that you're a very pure person, a holy person, worshipped, revered and worshipped. And you, you might think that I am a low caste, low caste person, despised and looked down upon. But in both of us, that inner self, which is an unbroken expanse of consciousness, unlimited expanse of consciousness and bliss, that is exactly the same. Just like the sun reflected in water. Does not matter what kind of water it is. The pure water of the Ganga does not make the sun any purer. The dirty water of the ditch does not make the sun dirty. So this, the reality, your reality and my reality are exactly the same. It is no difference whether it is in this body and mind or that body and mind. One example. The second example he gives is space. The space in a golden pot and the space in a clay pot. As far as space is concerned, it's the same space. The space in a golden pot does not become golden. The space in a clay pot does not become uh, earthy or muddy. It does not even matter what you use the pot for. You can, use, you can store Ganga water, the holy water of the, of the Ganga in the golden pot. You can store, use uh, um, the... Um, clay pot as a spittoon or something like that. And so one you would consider dirty, and the other one considered to be holy and used for a religious function. But in both cases, the space which they occupy, that space is not affected at all. Space in the pot, but there's actually no space in the pot. It's the pot is in space. You see, there's a glass of water here. Now, when I move the glass of water, is the water moving with the glass? Yes. Don't seem to be too sure. <laughs> yes. Obviously, when I say bring me a glass of water, it would make a, whole, a big mess if you brought the glass and the water stayed behind. <laughs> but, but, consider this. Half of the glass is empty. The proverbial half empty or half full. Half of the glass is empty. So let's say we just forget the air for the time being. We just say the space in that glass. So is the space moving with the glass? It would certainly appear so. When I'm moving the glass, the water is certainly moving. And the space? People are even less sure. Some are saying, yeah, it's moving. <laughs> Somebody actually quarreled with me. That, no, the space is moving with the glass. It looks like that. See, the space is moving. Obviously not. The glass is moving through space. Yeah. So, the space is absolutely unaffected. It is far subtler than, than the pot, the golden pot or the clay pot. The space is completely unaffected uh, by the nature of the pot. W what does that mean? Just like the sun and the water example, the space and pot example, the pot stands for the body and the mind, the body-mind complex. And space stands for this infinite ocean of existence consciousness is talking about. That is not at all affected. Just as the, no matter what the nature of the pot, it does not affect the space. No matter what the nature of the body and mind, it does not affect that existence consciousness, that consciousness bliss. So good for that. What, what about me? You are that consciousness bliss. <laughs> oh Shankara, what you are, that I am. This is what he says. So this is the introduction. It's like a challenge to Shankaracharya. And Shankaracharya responds to this by immediately he composes five verses. Panchakam. The word Panchakam means group of five. Panchakam. Five verses on Manisha. Manisha, it literally means that, you know, if you 
derive it in Sanskrit, it will mean that which is the lord of the mind. Mana is mind. Manit means the lord of the mind. Lord of the mind is buddhi, vijnana or, or intellect. So mind and on, uh, the, the one which rules over the mind is intellect. And manisha means that which belongs to the intellect. Basically, what does, what does he mean? What belongs to the intellect? Wisdom, knowledge, jnana. In Sanskrit, jnana. Manisha means wisdom or spiritual knowledge, spiritual insight. Manisha Panchakam, five verses on spiritual insight. That's the meaning. And Shankaracharya composes this. And in some of the verses, he ends with Chandalovastu Dvijovastuva Guru Ittyesha Manisha Mama. Let this person who has got knowledge like this, that I am Brahman, I am existence, consciousness, bliss, the one who has actually realized this, that person, let it be what, whatever, let that person be a Brahmin, let that person be a Chandala, uh, clay pot, golden pot, whatever it is, this person is my guru, this person is my spiritual master, and he bows down to the Chandala. And there are variations on the story, um, one variation is that, Banaras is the, is the city of Lord Vishwanath, Shiva in the form of Vishwanath. So Lord Vishwanath or Shiva has come in the form of the Chandala to teach uh, Shankaracharya an application of Vedantic insight. How do you manifest it in life? Not just read about it, not just argue about it, but actually apply it. See the sameness, the same divinity everywhere. So this is the background. And we will see what Shankaracharya has done is, in the five verses, <coughs> he has poured the entire essence of Advaita Vedanta. Now when we go through these verses, how, how, how are we doing for time? Okay. 20 minutes. Oh, 20 minutes. I think they're stretching. <laughs> <laughs> uh. It's not space, it's time. <laughs> now we are going beyond space and time. Yes. Um, so what do we do with this teaching? Here's the approach. In Advaita Vedanta, the approach, what you do with the teaching is, we all know, Shravana Manana Nididhyasana. Literally, hearing, thinking, and meditating. But if you go closer, look, take a closer look, what do you do with this? Hearing literally means not just listening, listening of course, but um, understanding what the teaching is. Let me simplify it even more. Ask yourself three questions that what what the teaching was do I know what the teaching was if somebody asks me okay this was the class you went to the class and you're out of the class now what did you hear can I give a fair summary or will you see I dozed off you know I really don't know I'll look at the recording later on <laughs> then the first stage is not complete the first stage is complete when I can repeat to my own satisfaction in the, in, um, in the classical schools of Vedanta, they would ask everybody to memorize. Don't look so scared, I won't do that. <laughs> they would ask you to memorize the original verses. But that, so that you can at least say, I know what the teaching is. And I, I've read it. Here is the teaching. That's the foundation. So that's the first stage. The first stage is complete when I can say, this, I can summarize the teaching. This is what they said. This is what he said. Or this is what the text said. One. Then what is the problem? The problem comes next is, I know what you said, I know what the book says, but I don't get it. I have some problems, I have some questions, I am not convinced. It's not enough to say, I am not convinced. You also have to say, why are you not convinced? You have to pin down your problem. Which, is the, which, is, which part of it is difficult? So the second stage comes when you, mananam, which is thinking about it, reasoning about it, arguing about it. That's why we have the satsang sessions. You can ask the questions there. Um, ask the question, write it down, I'll pick it up and I'll answer it. And I'll also um, interact with you to see, to follow up. Don't be too eager. When is he going to get to my question, my question? <laughs> Often you will see the person who asks the question, it might be a question in many people's minds. And sometimes the answer, if you're quietly sitting at, in a corner and listening, the answer might work for you, rather than for the person I'm addressing directly. So the questions are questions everybody has. So this is the second stage, where I can say at the end of the second stage, the second stage is complete when I can claim 
I have not only heard what the teaching said, I can tell you what the teaching is, and now I get it. In the first stage, I know what the teaching is, but I don't get it. I'm not convinced. I'm not persuaded. Second stage is, I am convinced. I get it. Then what, what remains? I get it, but it feels intellectual. I feel that I've learned a clever philosophy, but my life is not transformed. You claimed, you pushed the, this philosophy with the claim that my suffering would be transcended, uh, that I would get peace and satisfaction, um, fulfillment. I haven't got that yet. I'll take you to consumer court. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the third stage, Nididhyasana, where this problem that you know, technically it is called contrary tendencies. Is, we'll come to that later. Viparita bhavana, that is contrary tendencies. That I know what the teaching is, I am convinced about it, but I don't see it in my life. How do you address that? That's the third stage. Third stage is this meditation, nididhyasana. We'll speak about it briefly. And after which I should be able to say, not only do I know the teaching, not only am I convinced about it, it's real for me. There's still something remaining to be done after that, but it's still, it's real for me. So these are the three stages. This is what we will do with the teachings. As we go through it, tomorrow and day after, listen carefully so that I can say, yeah, I know what you said, Swami. Second, I get what you said, Swami. Third, fact or theory. If it's not a, fa a fact yet, you have to tell me at which, which point it stops being a fact. So, Advaita Vedanta claims whatever is in this book, no matter how incredible it might sound, it's a fact right now. It's a fact right now. So if you say that, no, it's not a fact yet for me. Uh, I understand it up to this point, but that remains. I have to be enlightened, I have to get samadhi, I have to get this uh, mystical experience, and then it will be. But remember, I said, it's not a journey in time. If it's there, all of it, what they claim, it must be here and true for all of us right now. All of it is a fact, just now. So where does it stop being a fact? At which stage? You ask and we'll work it out. We'll see. Those are some of the best questions. Questions also are of three kinds. One is at the first stage where I have to supply information. What is the teaching? The second stage where it's argument. You have a, uh, a skeptic. You have a problem with it. You raise it and I'll try to answer and, and convince you. Persuasive. Um, and the third stage is the most interesting. Where you don't need information. You don't need persuading. But you want the teacher to make it real for you. So that the benefits start flowing immediately. And, though, and it's possible actually. And that kind of question is the most valuable kind of question. So that, that's what we will do in the satsang sessions <laughs> yes <laughs> all right so we will every day we will chant the manisha panchakam and uh, please come nirmala ji seema seema ji seema ji yes please come those who can you can follow just uh, bring the microphone down a little. No, let it be. Bring the microphone down. Yeah.